what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I could do this all day. The Matt Sodnikar Podcast. Tech episodes of this podcast are now supported by Furos.io. That is F-U-R-O-S.io. Furos is a Denver cloud consulting firm. And chances are, if there's a big building in downtown Denver with their logo on the outside of it, Furos has got people in there doing some very interesting work that has an impact on those businesses. They focus on AWS, cloud consulting, and Their mantra is simple, hire the best people they can, pay them really well, and let them work on challenging, interesting projects that have impacts on the business. So if you are struggling with the cloud, and I know that's a really overused word in the tech space, and projects aren't getting done, and you need some help, look them up, furos.io, that is F-U-R-O-S dot I-O. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thanks for listening. I'm sitting here with uh, my friend and I guess colleague, Mark Hardy from HarperDB, who's the VP of Solutions. And Mark, thanks for making the time. My pleasure, Matt. Good to see you again. You too. You too. Um, I thought we'd start out by kind of our first meeting that was nothing to do with either one of our companies, but we were just having coffee and started going over like our sales methodology and let's just go right into that. Sure. That was a mind meld for sure. Wasn't it? Yeah. It's nice meeting another fellow, uh, I guess, relationship focused person. Huh? Sure. I guess, um, kind of sales philosophy back in the day in the late nineties, I was working for a company. It was a startup called documentum and they had this philosophy called crossing the chasm. And it was written by a guy named Jeffrey Moore and they went whole hog into crossing the chasm. This was a company based in Pleasanton, California. And the goal for them was they had a great technology, but they had to find a way to move from the tinkerers, the adopters who buy anything. Back then it was Apple Newtons (laughs) or whatever back then, whatever would come out, to kind of the people with money, the laggards, the pragmatists in the market. And so there was this bell curve of adoption of technology, and they sold a document management platform. And so they took the tack of finding a very niched, focused application that would allow them to move from the tinkerers into the pragmatists or the laggards. And they did this by attacking a very niche market, which at that time was pharmaceutical R&D. Now, document management is broad. It's a broad technology. You can do anything with it. But they decided to concentrate on this one niche application. So I got to see firsthand the company turn from a startup to a very successful multi-million dollar company by implementing that strategy for implementing technology and part of it's relationship based but part of it's also as we talked about solving people's business problems 
ourselves and listening. Right. I think that's what we had our conversation around that that day for coffee. Yeah. Yeah. I think I remember talking about, <clears throat> that's right, because there was that company in Golden that had contacted one of our people because they needed an app. Right. And I went up there and like, what is this app all about? <laughs> what, are you, what are you trying to solve here? Right. Like right. you need an app. Okay. <laughs> Red flag. <laughs> what the hell are you going to do with this? And yeah, that's right. That that was the base of that conversation because that kind of spun into them and their customers what they're trying to accomplish. And I told them that an app might be number five on the list, number 10, or it might not even make the list, but we need to figure out what the hell you're trying to do here first. Absolutely. I had a friend come to me the other day and he had a great business idea. And he's a pharmacist and he wanted to get into helping people understand their meds and understand how to apply various techniques that were more um, non-traditional methods of medicine, acupuncture and more holistic type of medicines. And he said, well, I think I'm just going to go with tech incubator in Boulder and build an app. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. <laughs> hold, hold on a second. How do you jump from I want to be a pharmacist that wants to kind of dabble in Eastern medicine too to I'm going to build an app for that? And so we sat and talked and realized that he wanted to help people, and his story was that he that's what he wanted to do. And so we talked at length about hey, why don't you just start a service? Why don't you go and sell your services first and see if it sticks, and then. Maybe an app is the eighth thing on the list after that point, but don't start there. Start with what do people want? What kind of services do they want? What's their business problem that you're trying to solve? And how can you personally help them solve that problem? And I think he saved them a lot of pain because he was building a business plan for this app. And he's not a technology guy. He's a pharmacist. So I think a lot of people jump to the, I'm going to build an app for that. And sometimes it works. And I think most of the times, like your friends in Golden, it doesn't, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I get the attraction, right? Because it's shiny and it's sexy and it's an endpoint that you could see. And the hard work is defining your product, or your customer, or your systems, and the, the non-sexy stuff about that. And I get the attraction, right? Especially in this day and age. Like, yeah, what is that? Oh, it's the, it was the commercial for taxi. I forget the tax preparer, right? But it's the young girl at the coffee shop and this dude like the, comes up like, hey, my app hit 100 downloads and she's taking the call from <laughs> the tax preparation. Like, take all the time you need, right? Yeah, it's attractive. You got a dollar ninety nine on the app and a million people are going to download it. So that's a, that's a really good uh incentive to go into the technology space but i think uh, a lot of people have to understand what is the value first and what how do they fit into the ecosystem personally so personally how can i solve somebody's problem before i can build an application or service or provide a company around that solution so the best meeting i ever had and i've always been trying to replicate this since that day was down in texas and i was selling um, um, professional development, soft skill training. And I was talking to the CLO, the chief learning officer, for I think it was Children's Hospital of Dallas. 
And for 50 minutes, he talked, I whiteboarded, sat down for a little bit. And then we both kind of looked at that, circled a couple of things. And then he's like, nobody's ever done this before. Like I didn't sell him. I was just talking to him. And that was as close as I've come to pitching a perfect game in the sales world. <laughs> you know, And if I could have not talked at all, that would have even been better. But it's just not the... It's not the prevailing philosophy, right? I don't think, you know, I think there's a lot of people that um, have built CRM empires and CRM systems and they try to automate their sales force. And I, in my opinion, the training of a salesperson is more in the listening and the skills of understanding your client before you jump and launch into a pitch. I'll give you a story. So back in the day, I was working in Abu Dhabi for a company called Intergraph Middle East Limited. And one of our clients was the assistant minister of telecommunications. And we were trying to sell him some kind of security system for his plant. And we'd go over there at nine o'clock in the morning and we would drink tea and we'd talk about family. And he opened a restaurant. And for almost a year, we did nothing but drink really strong coffee and eat really well. And then one day he invites me to his Diwania, which is a big party at his house. I mean, it's the tents. It's sitting on the pillows, everybody eating with their hands and dates. And finally he walks over at the end of the night and he says, I am ready to do business. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I don't know what you're selling, but I'm ready to do business. (laughs) So he understood that he could trust what we, or what I was trying to sell him at the time. And he got the relationship. He knew I'd been there for a while. And that uh, it's a personal thing. And I thought that it was silly at the time. I was young in my career, but then I realized that that's really the basis of sales, right? People buy from people that they trust. And not a lot of people can have all the time to look at every possible iteration of a solution so they're going to trust people and when you buy with trust you have to build those relationships first and listening is the first part of that so that was my my early learning experience had to happen in 3,000 miles from here but it was uh, it was a good one at any point during that relationship with that minister did you let go of the expectation of selling something? Was it, a, was it a physical switch that flipped in your mind or did you get frustrated and give up or was it just naturally based on your personality? I almost gave up every week. Every week because it was a kind of a cultural shift too. And I'll tell you another story when I got back to the States. So Cultural shift, things do happen slowly. We're selling big systems. So after a while, I actually enjoyed his company. And it became more of a friendship. And there was a point at which, you know what? It doesn't matter if I don't sell anything to this person again or ever. Because we have mutual, we have good conversations. We've, our families met. We've eaten dinners a lot. And so, yeah, at some point, and it was probably a few months into it, that 
I just realized that, you know what, if he buys something, great. If he doesn't, I have a friend, right? And also with the expected, maybe I am a sales guy at heart, so the connections that could possibly come out of that. But it was kind of a surprise at that party when it actually came true, and it was a big lesson for me as well. Things take time sometimes. So the interesting thing was after living over there for a couple of years, or actually six, I got a job with Documentum and in Denver. So we flew to Denver, and my first day in the job, we're used to sitting down and having a cup of tea and having, you know, a nice casual conversation. <laughs> this was my first day in the job, and I walked into my boss's office. And it was like nine o'clock in the morning. I sat at her desk and I had my tea and she looked at me. She goes, what are you doing? I was like, oh, my first day. She goes, I got time at 11 for you. Okay. About 11 to 1130. <laughs> let's have a chat. I'm on a call. I'll see you in a few. And I was like, oh, welcome to the U.S. You know, so it was a little bit of a change, rude awakening there. <laughs> No pillows, no dates. No pillows, no dates, no coffee, <laughs> sitting around with tea. But yeah, no, it was uh, it was interesting. So I want to go back to that first company you'd mentioned, you're crossing the chasm. <clears throat> and I have a friend that always used to say there's riches in the niches. And was it a, a combination of recognizing their customers and the niche? Could you Could you separate the success based on those two factors or... Was it so interwoven? Because to me, you could have a niche product, which like a thousand true fans, right? Mm -hmm. And then if you're targeting them correctly, I think that's the other side of that. But <clears throat> was one more powerful than the other? Was it the strategy or the niche? Or was it just like the, the magic, the lightning hitting both of those and igniting it? You know, I think some of it's opportunistic. So I, I think at the time they had some early adopter companies in pharmaceutical. And they made the decision of rather grow than, instead of going broad with their product mm -hmm. to get to the, to make it usable in a production situation, that they were going to go an inch wide and a mile deep on this one application. And they went for it. And so they built out, they actually stopped some of the other development that they were doing and they really concentrated and boiled down exactly what that customer needed for that application and then built it an inch wide and a mile deep. Now, what else, what happens then is you solve it, you get success. The other side of crossing the chasm is then you expand. Because now you've got the R&D side of pharmaceutical at the time. Now we're in the manufacturing side. Mm -hmm. So then I can start broadening my, my, my view or my product offering. But I've already crossed that chasm into that market area. So now you're a more accepted player in the same company. But I can go now call on other facets of the company so now i'm in manufacturing well now manufacturing now i can hit all manufacturing and so it's a brilliant book it stood the test of time it's uh it's a it's a really it, it left a mark on me for technology 
I will check it out for sure. Thanks for the recommendation. Who's the author on that? Jeffrey Moore. Jeffrey Moore. Shout out to Jeffrey if you're listening. (laughs) (laughs) He's one of my biggest fans. He will not leave me alone. He's probably calling you all the time. I should be so lucky. Um, So Harper DB. So um, take me through, because I think it's a really cool technology. And it's something that you and I have been talking for a couple months about it. And I like, so as a recovering software engineer, like I get, (laughs) I can appreciate the efficiencies of it even though I don't completely understand how all this stuff works. But as you've described it to me, it, I think there's an elegance to it. And so if you can, again, break out your crayons and draw it for me again, sure. <laughs> I would appreciate it. So a little background. So Stephen Goldberg, the CEO of HarperDB and I worked together probably 10 years ago in a consulting company. And he was, uh, <clears throat> Fresh off the boat from Baltimore, a very uh, bright software developer, and we stuck him on the most difficult integration projects we could find. Uh, Lots of CRM, lots of ERP, anywhere we would have lots of data coming in and lots of data going to other places. And so we both left our separate ways, but kept in touch. And uh, I was a co-founder of a subsea sensor company for a while. And that wound down in the middle of last year. It started to wind down. And Stephen and I reconnected and he started telling me about what he was doing. And he was crazy enough to build a database. Now, databases have been around for a long time, but they've morphed, and I've been kind of out of IT for a while. So he had to bring me up to speed on NoSQL databases and uh, data lakes and integration layers. And when he told me what they had built, it kind of caught my attention, mainly because from an operational perspective, being more on the engineering side and some of these technologies. So HarperDB has built a tool that completely decouples the storage of data from the application. Okay. And that allows, and they actually were, you actually received a, a patent on the technology that allows the application to read extremely large amounts of volume or volumes of data. It's perfect for things such as IoT, which is a, a big uh, market for us, but also allows that data to be automatically available to people using a bunch of standard interfaces, which means that as a, former developer or any developer, you have access to this data immediately using simple things like SQL. Simple things like what's called a REST API. You can, they, we built drivers that uh, can talk to common BI tools. And so it's a, it's a unique data storage mechanism that when the data is read, we don't have to define the schema 
it automatically writes the data in there. The schema is defined. And so I can immediately begin using my data. It's very, very simple. The other component of it is it's fully distributed. So I can take a node of HarperDB, which is really small, and I can put that on an Edge device, an Android tablet, and then I could put another node of HarperDB out in my department level, in my IT shop, or in my control room, and it will, using its built-in functions, synchronize that data based on how I want that data to, to flow in my organization. And that flow is what got my attention. Because if I think about data as a pipeline and being in the oil and gas business for several years, it's hard not to think of everything like a pipeline. So if you take data coming in, it travels a long way to get to its final destination. But along the way, there are applications where you may want to bleed off some of that data. You may have applications that are very specific to certain people that only need a subset of that data. So thinking about this data pipeline, data is coming in, in the front end, and let's look at IoT, the IoT space. Lots of sensors reading in lots of data. Well, that data doesn't have to just flow into this data lake, which is the end result or a data warehouse. And that's been the traditional paradigm. In this kind of distributed node or distributed database model, I could put nodes close to my end users. And then I can aggregate the data that they need for their job based on data held in other nodes. So for example, I could pull data from a, a car. I want to read its speedometer. I want to read its oil pressure. I want to read its data. But I can send that data, collect it on the edge with a HarperDB node, distribute it to, to my, maybe it's my, my depot where I'm managing all my vehicles. And then I can aggregate data from all those fleet vehicles into one node. But I can also restrict the data. I don't need all of that information. So on the edge, I can also filter that information. And then the data that comes into my depot can then go to my enterprise for analytics and reporting. So I can then take a subset of that data. Because each step along the pipeline, people may make derivative data sets from that raw data. And that derivative data can then go back into HarperDB in another table or another area and move on down the chain. So you've got this constantly flowing data pipeline, but all managed under one system. And that kind of caught my attention when I finally, my aha moment. Um, and I thought of many applications in my past where boy, we could really use this information here. I don't want to wait for it to get all the way into my data warehouse and then come all the way back to me through several layers of IT and massaging. And then it's derivative data at that point. I may just want to know right away, 
you know, what's the proximity of all of my fleet of vehicles? Or what is the uh, sensors reading on my pipe laid vessel or what have you? So there's lots of applications for data. <clears throat> so going back to my embedded systems days, this almost sounds like an interrupt. So like what we would have would be like, a, like an error code, right? And so we'd prioritize the errors when I was doing um, electrosurgery generators, right? Mm. So if there was a short at the patient mm -hmm. site, we'd have to kill the, the energy to the system. And that was priority number one. But that's a single piece of data that had priority over everything in the system. And so if I'm understanding this correctly, and I think I finally do, you'll be proud of me. I was hoping that. Is that you've got all this information and what Harper DB is allowing you to do is take the most important data at the most important place and time and act on it. And most location too. Okay. Because a lot of... In the last few years, everybody wants to put everything into the cloud. Yeah. But we are not convinced that every piece of data belongs in the cloud. It's expensive. It's latent. It takes a lot of time. But to your point, we can build rules around this data. As long as we're collecting it and we have the architecture, the, the database technology that can collect high volumes of data without a lot of IT support because a lot of the sensor data changes. You get a firmware update on a piece of equipment. All of a sudden, you got two new fields, and I got to get somebody to come over and program it. You don't need to do any of that. So, in your scenario, yes, I've got an interrupt. I've got a condition that's met on the edge here. Who am I going to send that to? Well, I can collect that and understand that right away and send it to the most important person who needs that at the moment. That's, that's exactly right. Okay. But I can still collect all the data. And many companies may still want to collect all of their data, but they don't need it right away. So there's a prioritization of data, also a location of where your data is. And having a distributed database allows me to do that with the most important thing, I haven't discussed that, is that it's not duplicated. Hmm. So a lot of systems will read data from an edge device or somewhere in the environment, store it or cache it locally for a time being, and then forward it to another system. The problem with that is it's expensive and complex because I have to build the systems in between. But also, if there are problems with that infrastructure, maybe there's no network, maybe the uh, <clears throat> system went down or the network went down, and now I've run out of memory on the data side that it's collecting. Now I've got data that's not consistent across my enterprise and I'm starting to lose data. So this, that's called a store and forward capability. And this kind of is a different paradigm. This is a true distributed data model. Well, on the risk and <clears throat> not knowing really anything about, you know, databases and analysis, but I know enough that if your data is bad and you're making decisions based on that data, your decisions are going to be wrong. Absolutely. And then if you've got uh, two fields or two records that are in conflict, 
which one's right? How do you do all that? And in, in typical database technologies are stored in one big file, volumes of data. And so if I try to read or read and write a lot of data, there's a lot of times where the system will crash. It'll just row lock. So the types of data that we're looking at now, the high volume IoT data or the very high volume, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of ETL, extract, extract, transfer, load, transform, load, where you'll take data from lots of different systems, aggregate it into one place, and then push it to other systems in the environment, that, those data sets at high volume, when you're trying to write to the same database, you have things such as row locking. You have system crashes just because of the underlying storage infrastructure. And that was the brilliance in the patent that these guys have developed of, of this, this storage algorithm where it's not going to crash. So it took me a long time to get my head around this, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Months. But so, uh, yeah. Well, I'm doing the, the correlation in my head because when we were checking out code, we had a uh, revision control system. Hmm. So I'm working on <clears throat> um, io.c, and it locks you out of the official code base that you can't overwrite the code. And so then there's a race to get in. It's like you have to wait till I'm done and then you can take it out. There's, there's a tracking. And so this is all starting to add up in my head a little bit. And the, the attributes are atomic. So in a row, a typical row of data, if I'm trying to write to one attribute and someone else is trying to write to another attribute in the same record, it's going to lock. Not with HarperDB. I can have two transactions working independently on the same row of data, updating different attributes. So, again, super high volume. And that's the, the uh, brilliance, I guess, of this storage algorithm that allows for this atomic level of data to be written and, 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 and read. Well, I have a confession to make. I've tried to use Microsoft Access once in my life to create a simple database. <laughs> and I know Excel like a witch, right? I can write formulas in Excel and do all this. <laughs> and I opened up Access one time and I looked at this and I couldn't make it do anything. And I'm wondering if it's kind of like... Um, I don't know, like uh, left hand, right hand type stuff, or mm -hmm. if there's like a philosophical difference between say like spreadsheets and databases, but I'll have to go back and try to figure that out because I, I didn't even know what to do. Like I get the concept of a database, but I, I don't know. Well, it's, it's kind of a good analogy because in Microsoft Access, it's one file. It's called the database, but it's actually a file. So if we had multiple people trying to write to that one file at the same time, you'd get conflict. And it's possibly you'd crash your application. It's because their storage capability is directly tied to their database. It's a big file. And that's, that's been traditionally how relational databases were developed. And to overcome that, a lot of companies have 
scale bigger and bigger servers. Uh, a lot of databases have come up with in-memory type of processing where they'll read the data out of file into memory so that they can do large transactions. That costs a lot of money. It's very expensive. And some of the benchmarks we're seeing were 30 times, 32 times less compute for the same transactions than traditional databases, which means I could run the same database load on a fraction of the cost of the server infrastructure. So data has to be maintained, right? Right. So it's going to be processed, stored, moved, analyzed, verified. And so the more simple that you can make it, theoretically faster and cheaper and more accurate it's going to be. Absolutely. And Holy cow. Very good. You got it. <laughs> We're looking for sales help. Here. I need a nap. <laughs> Well, and also, I mean, I was attending some conferences in the last uh, few months in the oil and gas industry, and there's a lot of data there. And the data science has become crazy popular now with a lot of people uh, getting into that field. And there was, there was a statistic that said 80% of data scientists, their 80% of their job is just validating and finding data. Because hmm. there's duplicate data, qualifying it, making sure it has it's the right information. So we still haven't bridged that gap between what is the right data versus uh, based on the volumes that we have out of the market. Well, if 80% of those people with that education and that skill set are using that just to make sure that it's not redundant. That seems like a complete waste of their capabilities. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think the industry is ripe for a new paradigm yeah. in how to manage data. So did this all get out of control? Well, not, I don't want to say out of control, but did it bloat and grow <clears throat> simply because people are kind of building things in flight? It's like, hey, we've got this idea for a company. We've got to kind of make this thing work. And then, oh, we can add a storage array and some compute and then the cloud. Like, we don't have to really worry about it. Is that kind of an artifact of that? You know, I don't know because I really took a gap in my career for a good eight years out of IT hmm. and into more of an operational oil and gas role. So I, I didn't keep up with when it happened. And then I recently, you know, came back into this world and you've got all these words I had to learn, Hadoop and data lakes and all this kind of technologies. And it looks like people are trying now to get their arms around their data and they had so much legacy information that the first pass seems to be taking it all into putting it what's called data lakes, which are kind of these big unstructured uh, warehouses of data. And it's fine to get the data in, but now I think we're at the point where people struggle on how to get the data out still. 
And I don't, it's not a tech, I don't think that's a technology challenge as much as it is a data governance challenge in a lot of companies. There needs to be uh, more of a data management culture in some organizations. In many companies I've been in, we've had, just think about your document management in any medium to large size company. And I've been in a lot of small companies where you have Dropbox and SharePoint and uh, Google Drive and all <laughs> this. And hey, it's great. I can put everything in the cloud, but good luck trying to find it because people are moving so fast that they don't want to build a real data governance strategy that people will hold on to. And so I think part of it, and I'd say a good percentage of the issues are just the organizational structure within companies don't have a data governance that is really effective. There are some companies that do a really good job of it. But most, I don't think, don't. And when you start getting into smaller companies, it becomes something you have to clean up later, which is why 80% of the time, I'm a data scientist, <laughs> I got to go find and figure out what data is out there. So in my engineering career, we had to have, file names had to be specified. We would create a file naming format. And I would say, 80% of the time, like my personal stuff, I will utilize that, you know, so it's like a date and some specific thing. And Lots of underscores. Oh, yeah. And I'm glad they made those characters really long now. Remember back in the day, you could only 32 have, it's more than that now, but you could yeah. write a paragraph and make a file name. But yeah. Yeah. And as much as I hate getting organized and it doesn't come naturally to me, I hate looking for stuff more and, you know, I've got these huge subdirectories of everything, but like in to the point where I'll have labels that are like, <laughs> so um, not specific to the file, but specific to, I think if I'm going to need this in a year, this is how I would search for it. <laughs> well, now getting back to when we first started, that's what Documentum's uh strategy was they were a document management system where you didn't have to rely on the file name and you could build process flows and they did a really good job of that and in going back to the earlier conversation it's probably why the pharmaceutical r&d market was so successful for them was because those people understood how difficult it was to manage all of this data. And they had really good data governance. And I didn't realize that until we just talked. And that's probably why they, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to talk to some people way back in the past. That might have been one of the reasons they selected that market was because they had the right end users that could, leverage the technology, but also have the business processes in place to be able to build their data governance in that in that with the technology and so that one and one equal three in that scenario. So the data governance paid off in efficiencies down the road. Absolutely. 
Yeah, I was at a uh, meeting today at uh, it was an oil and gas uh, symposium on data, and they were talking about um, seismic data, which is kind of the lifeblood of any oil company. It's you know it's but they one of the speakers was talking about how they did an acquisition of another oil company back in the day, and twenty tractor trailer trucks showed up. With documents. <laughs> In boxes. Of course. And they were labeled and everybody, you know, had their processes in the past. But all of that documentation is just out of control. And to be honest, today, there's only a couple things that I've seen would prevent that one is extensive litigation which you know if you don't have some of this data at your fingertips you are going to spend the money to have a process because it's hard this company spends two to three million dollars a year in just managing their their data their data flows their data processes their data governance so there are organizations out there literally drowning in data and legacy data. Wow. And it's not a technology, right? It's 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 what organization culturally can make this part of their business. And it's not a particularly sexy kind of vocation, right? It's almost like the librarian. Well, yeah, you got to be able to find it and use it, right? Or else it doesn't really exist. Or when did, how do you destroy it? Right. You now, when do you take this data and say, you know what? I no longer want to hold on to it anymore. And so there needs to be processes for getting rid of your data. So there's still lots of challenges out there for data management pieces. I mean, we're sitting here talking about HarperDB, great database to take even more data. Now we're pulling data off of 20 kilohertz relays at incredible amounts of volume. But the companies that can harness that speed and efficiencies and volumes and pair that with an organization that can govern that those data sets will be the ones that will truly capitalize on all these technologies. Well, it also sounds too like Harper would Harper DB would give people an easy way to experiment and test hypotheses. Because if you've got, <clears throat> rather than you know, doing some massive deployment of some IoT thing and building all that up, so we could do like little trial runs of this and see little little proof of concepts without, you know, spending a couple hundred thousand dollars to figure this out. Right? Absolutely. And that's that's our go to market strategy here is by doing very low uh, risk, uh, but high reward proof of concepts for clients where we can boil down the actual technology or the proof points for them prove that but that they can also take those proof of concept solutions and tweak the dials 
I'm going to increase my data. I'm going to increase my filtering. I want to change my configuration of where data goes so they can get a good feel of what this would cost them in not just the cost of software and hardware, but the hidden costs of network traffic, the hidden costs of administration. You know, do I need 14 IT guys to build interfaces for all this data? One of the uh, key things at HarperDB, it's a very simple interface. So you can leverage your existing IT staff because there's so many interfaces into this single data source. So that's a great plug on the proof of concept. That's exactly how we'd like to go to market. And then getting back to the crossing the chasm point is, you know, people need to buy solutions that are specific to their needs. But we're not an applications company. We are not. We are a, at, at our core, we're a database company. So we rely on partners that are experts in specific industries. And partnering with those, part, with those companies allow us to support these specific applications in the market while we concentrate on providing the best distributed database that we can. And so we work with a lot of OT partners. We work in the IT space with IT partners. And rarely will we take on a project ourselves without a partner. And that keeps us true to the foundational component of HarperDB while not trying to become an application provider. So break down for me the difference between <clears throat> IT and OT. We talked about that before, but it's I thought it was a, a pretty interesting distinction between the two. You know, in, I've been kind of on the OT side the most of my life, and I've never noticed or realized that it was called OT. It was just the engineering side. So I have an engineering background like you. And what kind of engineer? I'm a mechanical engineer. Okay. You and build stuff you can see. I build stuff that'll break. <laughs> <laughs> Automation systems such as SCADA or DCS systems were very closed loop. <clears throat> they automated your plant. They did all the controls for all the machinery and they were very closed. They had built in uh, control systems and built in dashboards and dials and you put it in. And it worked. Now, with the proliferation of more sensors, people are now saying, what do I do with this detached sensor? It sends me data wirelessly. I can use it to augment my SCADA, but how do I implement that? And anything on the shop floor are used more of an operational manufacturing, mining, oil and gas is kind of operational technology. And those were managed by the process engineers, by the operational people, not by IT. IT to that audience is my email. It's my, uh, my network, maybe. So, but now 
when this data is able to be integrated, the operational data is now being sought after by the business. An example would be an ERP system. Wouldn't it be nice if I could output my daily production flow of widgets directly out of my production control system into an ERP system? That's a application where you have this, you break the boundaries between IT and OT. OT, you've got a closed system. That is 99.999% reliable. If that breaks, you're out of business. IT, if your email goes down, eh. You know, it's a nuisance. It's a problem. My CRM system goes down for a few hours because of maintenance. It's not a problem. So it's not just the technology side, OTIT. It's very cultural as well. It's... And it's a little bit of reticence on change. If it's not broke, I do not want to put anything new into that system. And, and companies that are into this automation and control system spend a lot of time in testing. And plants take a lot of time switching out components. It's not just a, a typical server switch like it would be on IT. So culturally, OT people have had to learn IT because IT people usually didn't venture out on the shop floor. But IT people are now trying to wrap their heads around this operational data. Where did this come from? You know, what's, why do I have like a gigabyte an hour of this data source that I just accidentally turned on and it just crushed my network? <laughs> <clears throat> Where did this come from? Exactly. Which is why having something like HarperDB on the edge to filter that data and then have a node sitting in your operational control room, but having another node sitting in IT where I can synchronize just that IT required data is a, is a good method of bridging that gap between the two worlds. So what are some, um, what's your favorite win or case study so far that you've had without disclosing like company or anything like that, but what's just going back to how you sell and the, the problem you've solved for your customer. So we went to a mine in the middle of nowhere, Stephen and I, and we had to go to Walmart, get our steel toe boots. I've done that. <laughs> I got the real comfortable ones that almost looked like tennis shoes, and he got the like cloddy ones, and he was complaining later, but that's another story. Did but, you have to wear fire retardant stuff? You know, it wasn't a uh, – we were just doing a plant tour. Okay. We had the vest. We had the hard hat with the glasses and all, and I'm used to that kind of from the oil and gas days. But their problem was they had a variety of – electrical relays and the electrical relays controlled all electrical operation of their plant. So they had steam turbine generators that were generating a lot of power and these relays would, would they would subdivide the bus 
so they would provide certain power to certain areas of the plant. These relays are very sophisticated uh, electrical components, super high speed, and if a certain situation was detected they would trip and if they trip part of your plant snap so in the front of this relay there's a serial port and so on a trip event the guys would come in from across the plant with their pc and plug into this serial port download all of this data off of this relay and try to make sense of what happened and every hour is worth money. Sure. So the business case was relatively simple. Would be, how do we collect this data real time on the edge and immediately transfer the required information directly to the people that were going to troubleshoot the issue? So that was a fun case study. And it really proved kind of the OTIT bridge. And it also was a really big win for the client. (laughs) As you're telling that story about the mine, I I grew up in Pueblo and there's the, uh, like just the massive machinery, right? And the steel mills down there, but the story is not about that. It's about the they have a train museum, train depot there. And every time I go through there, there's uh, a an old locomotive. I don't know if it's from the 1800s, 1900s, but one of the wheels is literally as tall as this thing. And I looked at that, and it's like these a human being built this with probably pencil and paper, maybe a slide rule. I don't even know, and it worked. Crazy. And then seeing things like ships, like I'm fascinated by the scope and the size of mines and things like that, mining equipment, all that. It's kind of crazy to really understand how far engineering has come, but really how far it really hasn't come because it's all based on the physical world, material characteristics, uh, Basic physics haven't changed. It's our technology of how we actually we can make things faster. But you, know, you got to tip your hats to some of the engineers and re, you know in previous centuries building the Empire State Building. Yeah, you know, holy cow! Still standing. Uh, it's still standing. <laughs> There's still machines out there. So this plant was built in the '60s, and a lot of the machines are still running. So, yeah, I mean, it is kind of mind-boggling. And now, with these new sensor technologies and new processes, how much further we're going to push automation and, and industry. It's, uh, it's really exciting time. It really is an exciting time. Well, Mark, I'll post links to where people can find you, but where's the best place to <clears throat> get a hold of you and, and HarperDB? Uh, HarperDB has a website, obviously. It's www.harperdb.io, and I can be emailed. Remember that old-fashioned email thing? <laughs> I don't have a Snapchat. I do have an Instagram, but uh, I can be emailed at mark at 
harperdb.io. This has been fun. I, I enjoy every time we get together and Absolutely. You know, talk about more uh, uh, theoretical things. Absolutely. Thanks for making the time.